Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, Director of Global Talent Development at Framestore, and welcome back to the Framestore podcast, episode 15, part two. From March, we are celebrating Women's History Month with a stellar lineup of female team members under this year's theme, Celebrating Women Who Tell Our Stories. On Monday's episode, we engaged VFX supervisor Patricia Laguno in our 13-question grilling, otherwise known as the Framestore Podcast Dailies. On today's episode, we pass the mic to this week's guest co-host, New York-based VFX compositor, M. Hackley. So without further delay, we very much hope you enjoy episode 15, part two of the Framestore Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 15, part two, the second instalment of our conversation with VFX supervisor Patricia Laguno. This is where we hand over to this week's guest co-host, VFX compositor M. Hackley, who will continue the interview where we left off. So M, it's over to you. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I wanted to start off the questions with something a little bit generic, but I feel like it kind of lays the baseline. And I was wondering if you could break down your usual day-to-day responsibilities and what they looked like. Well, I mean, as a VFX supervisor, essentially, you mostly 90% of your day is spent in dailies. Dailies are span all of the departments and generally it's just about reviewing versions and giving feedback and uh, and then occasionally obviously or having had alls for specific assets that you want to dev but also then just liaising with production there's a bit of bidding involved there's a bit of uh, strategizing with schedules there's reporting to management on how you're doing for targets and generally then also you know prepping for client calls doing client reviews there are other things to do with showreels and prepping playlists for web screenings and management weeklies and generally it's just about getting the work going really and assisting every department in making sure that they have what they need as well as just having a bit of a creative conversation uh, to get the work done. Very interesting. I didn't know that about the bidding process that you could have involvement in regards to that. Um, I thought that was much more on the production side of things. So that's pretty cool. Speaking about productions, I wanted to ask if you've ever found your way onto sets. And if so, what is your favorite project that you were able to work on set for, if you can talk about it? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I haven't been on set like um, extensively. I did bits and pieces a really long time ago. I was on set for the Harry Potters, but just doing VFX unit stuff for element shoots, but not really supervising any of the work, just literally just spending two or three days shooting interactive elements and dust and this and that and the other. Um, But it was exciting because you got to see everything else and, you know, I had a sneaky peek at everything else that was actually uh, going on. So that was good. I was also on set for briefly for X-Men 3, which was fun for the closing shot, which took about two, two or three days to get in the camp. And then I have been on set 
also very, very briefly for like one day covering for Alexi on Wonder Woman. And after that, I was more extensively on set for the Downtons, for Downton Abbey 1 and 2, where I spent the bulk of the time that I was on set. There was a little bit more a complete set experience that you would expect as a VFX soup in terms of getting involved with them on location scouts uh, and then on the actual days and prepping with them and properly meeting the art department and the rest of the crew and the grips and the lighting and everything just to try and just prepare for for, for the day essentially and let them know what they needed to do. Um, so yeah, that was fun. The location scouts were really good fun. Yeah. Do you ever get to have, I know you said it's been a while since you've been on set, but back when you kind of more often were on there, did you have a say or were you able to kind of put in that you were more open to set work or was it just something that you were needed so you were kind of thrown in that direction? The earlier ones, it was more ad hoc. Downton, it was a bit more planned. You do have a say, but it really depends on the clients. It depends on the scale of the production. It depends on the type of project that you have. I mean, generally, by the time that you get to the day of the shoot or any day of the shoot, it's organized chaos. It's always organized chaos. There are so many variables as to how much you can then muck in or make them change. I mean, to course correct something while you're there, I would say it's nearly impossible. Prepping everything, communicating with everybody very simply and very succinctly in a way that every department can understand what it is that you want and how they can help you so that everybody's got you on the radar because generally for a lot of shows, the visual effects is not what they're thinking about. They're never really going to be thinking about anything. And once they get there, they are prioritizing performances, they're prioritizing lighting, setups, they're prioritizing everything else apart from the vfx unless it's a so this is why it really depends on the show if it's a really vfx heavy show obviously they will have a bigger understanding of how important it is to keep you on the on the loop but generally even for those kinds of shows they would have thought okay so you know we've had the conversation with you you've requested this green screens here we kind of know what we're doing and to as i say to course correct that during the day it's very difficult to do because there's like hundreds of people doing this choreographed dance and, you know, nobody wants to go into overtime because everyone starts hemorrhaging money very quickly. So if you get to the end of the day, again, it depends. If you're shooting at the beginning of the day, there's a little bit more leeway to have conversations with people. The closer that you get to the end of the day, you're just going to have to be a bit gung-ho and, you know, make your connections within the people on set. But, you know, it's very important to know the names of everybody. And I think heads of departments are people that you want to establish a relationship with before you get going. So they know you and they know they can trust you and they understand how to communicate with you and what you need from them. So that if you do need a quick something or a quick change of, whatever they might be more open to you know listening to you if you just suddenly jump them at some point during the day. interesting yeah I guess that makes sense that's some good advice so you've been working in this field in this industry for a while now and you know I see this uh trend of mid and senior artists struggling with burnout 
um, especially just in the state of the way that our industry works and crunch and overtime. And I wanted to ask you specifically how you personally deal with and cope with burnout. Well, I mean, we briefly talked about that in the earlier part of the podcast, didn't we, about how a lot of it is managing worry and anxiety by trying to retain a bit of a sense of humor and perspective. But obviously, to say that that's the end of the story would be a little bit facetious because the pressure that gets put on people, it's real pressure and you can try and do your best to manage it uh, psychologically as best you can. But I think the other thing that it's very, that comes perhaps with experience or also different characters and personalities um, is to set clear boundaries and let, you know, and manage expectations a little bit. Because you're going to have to at some point, if you really are thinking that you're getting, you know, to a stage where you 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 becoming unable to do anything because everything's too much and then you think you know you get you get to you get to those situations sometimes where you think there are so many things that I need to do that you end up doing nothing because you just panic and it becomes a little bit overwhelming and I think that once you've been in that situation once or twice you realize that you have to create the space before the crunch time so that you're not you know, you're not already overtired when you get to, you know, to the more demanding stretches of a project, but also that you make it really clear to production as well. And I think communication, again, is the key with this, because I'm, like I have found, having been particularly having done long stretches where I was part timing and I had the kids or you have all the commitments and you don't need to have an excuse. You don't need to have family in order to feel entitled and in, to, to have your own life and to manage your own time and to, and, to, and to set out those boundaries. And I think so long as you communicate what you can and cannot deliver in your schedule efficiently and clearly ahead of time with production, generally that's all that's required because they, you know, it's the unknown that derails projects and schedules is not the fact that you say, look, I'm not going to be able to do weekends or I'm not going to be able to work past six for the next month, for the next two months or ever, you know, if you ever don't want to do it. There isn't an expectation that people will do it. There is a wanting to know what availability people have. And so I think you just have to be confident and clear enough to communicate that um, and maybe be very organised if you know that you don't have that flexibility, I think you have to become more organized to let people know and to say, look, I've got this and this and this is upcoming and take a little bit of charge of your schedule thinking, look at your upstream assets ahead, see where your lighting is, see where they've got those schedules, talk to your leads a lot and say, I can see that you've got this and this and this for me this week and next. I can see that this is not going to come out of lighting for whatever. And I can already see that this two week schedule is going to be really back ended and I'm not going to be able to do this over time at the end of next week. So is there anything else that we can do? Can you prioritize that lighting render or that, or that task? Or can you perhaps shuffle my schedule to pick up all the things that might be more low hanging fruit so that I can block this week and then you can push the other stuff back so they're always, I think production are always open and very responsive in my experience. They always have a very responsive to you, you know, grabbing the reins and being a little bit more proactive with that sort of thing rather than just being 
in that car crash mode where you're just a passive recipient of someone else trying to organize the work and then you can see you can see impending doom and you're just already getting anxious about it before you can even do anything right because you you're probably not doing the other time today and tomorrow but you can see that at the end of the week is going to be a nightmare i would just always raise your hand and say you know it's too busy i'm not going to be able to cope so that's very that's really good to know uh speaking of communication have you ever had to deal with difficult people obviously there are the clients and they are their own beasts but also what about in relation to other artists um since you do kind of manage and work with us all if so how do you navigate through situations like that again i think it's so dependent on experience and the people i have been lucky enough to not to very very infrequently have found myself in um, a situation like that occasionally you do and for me personally it's always been a case of trying to be very honest with myself and first of all try to decide am I finding this person problematic because there's a clash of personalities or because you know and it's simply harder to work with some people than others because you get on and you communicate naturally more easily with some people and you you know you have a you have some sort of connection and with some of the people, perhaps that's not so easy. So often you find that it's up to you to up your game and try harder, try smarter and and learn and understand that some people initially, hmm, I'm not sure that this is working very efficiently, but actually once you get to know them, once you get into a group or a dynamic or you change your tack a little bit, it becomes really productive and that's that and that's all that's required often obviously occasionally that I have worked very occasionally just like two or three times with people that I thought were just simply not that keen or not pulling their weight or there were other issues or they needed support in some other way and then I guess you know that's that, that, that that's also a learning curve in terms of like leading teams and and doing that kind of like people management and developing your soft skills in that sense that you need to understand there are workflows and set steps that you need to take in situations like that but I would say 90% of the times it is again a case of just talking to people going to the person before before you show any frustration before you think that you even talk about it with anybody else just I I'm, I'm a big fan of just like being really honest and just approaching the person and saying very frankly this and this and this is what I'm struggling with what am I doing wrong how can I help you because obviously it can't just be you know it takes two to tango so what can I do to support you and you know 90% of the time that resolves it because you just become better and the other person becomes reassured and often it's just a bit of encouragement that is needed. I like that it's two takes two to tango it's I think kind of a good breakdown of how a lot of interactions work. I think this one's more of a lighthearted question. I go to movies often and I find myself, especially in the past, like, I don't know, three to five years, uh, struggling just watching a movie and taking it at face value. Are you still able to enjoy movies and media? I know that I catch myself unconsciously trying to break down almost every big shot that I see on the big screen. Does this get easier for you over time? Or is this something that you kind of deal with whenever you go to the movies or watch TV? So I think that I'm really dumb in some respects. <laughs> and I get, I, honestly, I get sucked into a narrative. Even if, even if I'm not enjoying the film, 
I've had a thing where like I'm not if I start watching something I just have to finish it even if it's just to slag it off even if it's to then stomp off to bed but having failed completely the fall and short changed after an evening's entertainment that hasn't really worked out but I still my suspension of disbelief is kind of instant <laughs> so I'm very childish in that way and I find it really hard to put my to keep my professional hat on when I'm actually watching something which is sometimes it's often a bit of a disadvantage you know because people say oh and, you know in that scene and do you think they did this with like or that simulation or whatever and I was like I don't know what you're talking about I was so excited <laughs> about what was happening or the line of dialogue or whatever so no I do not I do not have any difficulty at all in not being technical and watching the films and just taking every I take everything at face value basically that's kind of awesome. I love that. I hope to be able to take in movies like that uh, someday. That's really funny. I wanted to ask how, because you've been working at Framestore for a little over 20 years, I wanted to ask more from a historical standpoint how your job has evolved over this period of time. You know, you've worked on a variety of shows over the years, and I understand that the tech is, you know, has changed and improved, but was there ever a noticeable shift in the way things were run or operated? I know, obviously, right now, and especially, you know, post-COVID, I feel like shows are being churned out at this kind of, you know, crazy, faster rate um, with such high fidelity standards, so... Yeah, and so I think in order to service that and achieve that, there was a, a very intentional shift from a more uh, interdepartmental artist-to-artist workflow at some point to trying to get departments to work together in a very streamlined, standardised form. And I think that was it's most obvious with lighting in that... Uh, I remember a long time ago or in the olden times, you know, like it was a product of the fact that you had more time to deliver the shots as well. And so you had the luxury of having extended one-to-one conversations with your lighter about how you were going to do this and how he he or she was going to custom break their renders and do something nifty just for you for your shots, which would be unthinkable today. Because it's all very standardized, and and even the way that we were comping before we moved to category lighting, and you know you had all your shading passes separately, so you had full control of the specular in this little bit of something, as opposed to just having everything bunched up together for this category light or whatever. So you had a lot more control in comp, and also it opened up the conversation a lot more between lighting and comp. It was a very different kind of um, workflow and experience of how you were designing and approaching the work. It was, in a way, a bit more collaborative. And I think a lot of that collaboration is kind of shifted to the lead level rather than the artist level. When leads in comp or comp supervisors are trying to set up the shows and they're thinking about different sequences and they will talk to the lighting leads and they would say, we're going to need X, Y, or Z uh, for this. And then even beyond them, they might be talking to effects or CG saying, we're going to need print bars set up for this dust bit or whatever, or to cull some particles or whatever it may be that you need to try and um, plan it to give your artists in each department the, the tools that they need and the control that they need to actually get the work done. But in terms of each individual artist having access to their lighter to customize things, 
that's that's gone. So that's a very significant change, I think, for me. And it's one that I initially struggled as an artist a little bit because I was very used to just rocking up to someone, literally not even on a chat, and just going, you know, just doing it a a little bit more not out of the box because the pipeline's always been there and it's always been robust and it's always been not a constraint but a, a support thing but you had you always had to work within that but even within that there was a lot of customization that people were doing which is now needs to happen a bit more as a prep at, at the prep stage when you're setting up the show I wanted to ask how has been your experience kind of quote unquote climbing the ladder, um, especially as a woman who has been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years now, did you ever kind of experience, and this doesn't have to be a ex- specific example, but have you ever experienced like this gender specific roadblock either within a studio or a client? Not very much is my answer for two or three different reasons. I think that I mentioned before as well that Fiona was very keen on championing, you know, a little bit of flexibility and women progressing into more uh, supervisory creative roles. And she has done that for a very long time. That's evened up the scales massively. I think that a lot of other people who may be less um, extroverted the very fact that you are a minority and, and, and there's still a marked minority of women on those supervisory roles and, you know, lead creative roles, not, it's getting much better and it's definitely, we're on the way there. And I'm really proud of all the progress that has been made, I think, within Framestore on that front. But I think that it puts some people, you know, it will hold some people back. Even if the support is there, it's just that thing of like having representation and roles to think, oh, I, I can see myself doing that because I can see this person and this person kind of like looks like me and they're doing the, the, doing the job. is the basic sort of like role modeling, right? The kids get in primary school and then you think it's, it's that very thing of like, a, you know, when I was... I was trying to explain to my mom because my mom was, we were having this conversation about, you know, um, gender bias and so on. And she's like, but I remember, you know, I, I, I chose your school because they were forever telling you that you could achieve anything. You could do anything. You could do anything. You could pick any job that you wanted or you could be anything. And I said, and I said to her, and I believed it when I was young, but going through school, there's that thing of like any piece of literature that you read, any significant historical figure that you learn about, and it's all, men you know so it's it's kind of like they tell you something but it's something that doesn't exist yeah it's like the discrepancy there's a massive discrepancy all the culture everything that is significant all of the bulk of knowledge that you're being told it's essential that you learn because this is what it's all about and this is what an education is etc it's not created uh, by you or for you so there's the gap of everything which in, in itself is quite exciting because it's the new thing that is not there and can and will be completely different and completely unique. And this is why there's hope as well. And I think similarly with that sort of thing, it's like you can you can tell people that they can, but until there are enough, there's that tipping point of people who already have, it's quite hard for the majority of people to feel that that possibility is real, even at a subconscious level. You know, they might tell themselves that they're on their way to do this, but it will be a bit more of an uphill uh, journey, I think, for, uh, for, for, for women. 
But I think less and less every day, which is great. And for me, as I say, it's been facilitated for me in many ways. And I think in terms of clients or whatever, there are nicer people and less nice people. And I think the people that you also have to have a bit of a thick skin, but I think you do whether you um, male or female. And I haven't really experienced any at all, any kind of like obvious open misogyny. I've always felt that people who patronise me often and very occasionally, it was more to do with class. It was more to do with nationality sometimes than gender. There's a kind of cross-sectionality to all of this. And so obviously if you're a working class immigrant lady, (laughs) you probably get the brunt of a lot of things. But I haven't. I was expecting to struggle with things like that. And people are, I think people are generally in the industry quite nice, in my experience. That's really good to hear. I'm really happy to hear that. That's fantastic. I had that question kind of lined up and I was a little nervous to ask. I was like, oh, what kind of horror stories am I going to hear? So that's really good to hear. Um, I do have one last kind of question um, on a kind of a higher note to wrap all of this up. Um, I wanted to ask, how you find joy in this field, if that spark um, is still there for you. I can imagine that over time, you know, it can become harder to come by and not always there. So what kind of projects give you that creative and exciting kick? I think that for me, it's more, it is, of course, depend. you know, a project is a big thing in terms of determining how your level of enthusiasm, but I really do think that it's about the team. And I think it's about how the, the, the creative possibilities that you create, that, that you make within any kind of um, brief, you know, like I've worked in very different, on very different shows. I know that some people are more keen to work in some films than others or projects. I have always been quite easygoing, but generally, obviously, I, I, I've i enjoyed more working on things that are colourful, just because I like colours. It, it boils down to very simple things for me. It's just about what's going to give me visual pleasure every day when I'm looking at the images. You know you're going to have to be looking at those images for a very long time. And so if every, if the work that you are involved with, it's already got, a visual language or a palette that, 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 that is more exciting to you, then I think that's a massive, as a compositor, that having come from comp, for me, that's, 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 that's what really, really gets me very engaged and very excited about things. So um, I loved working on Mary Poppins Returns because it was just, you know, because it was lovely and it was really, you know, it was just every frame was really fun and lovely to grade and you know and it was really imaginative and but equally as I said you know with Ragnarok was the same in terms of the visual palette that it had and and for me it's more about that than the complexity of the assets that you get in you know I mean sometimes I of course and when I was an artist I used to get a kick out of like working on a monster shot you know and thinking oh they've given me the They've given me the monster and then I'm going to be busy for four months and nobody else can open my script because it's hideous and I've got like 20 million pre-coms or whatever. <laughs> and then you really nerd out. And I, and I do, you know, of course I do enjoy nerding out. But ultimately I think the, the biggest sense of happiness and, and elation comes from, from making something beautiful, I think. I love that. 
Well, thank you. I, you've, you know, really kind of inspired me and it makes me excited to be up and coming within this industry, speaking with you and hearing about you know, your past experiences and also the current state of your perspective of things. So thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Thank you for asking very interesting questions. It's really good to know that you, you know, that you are truly wanting to cover all those bases and, and have, you have such a wide ranging interest in many areas. So that's great. Thank you. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, you used the term inspiring. Um, I've really enjoyed these episodes. Uh, I couldn't think of a better a better pairing to kick off our uh, our month-long celebration of Women's History Month, uh, particularly under the banner of uh, celebrating women who tell our stories. I mean, everything you've spoken about, particularly I'm so interested in your attraction to working with colourful shows. Again, every conversation and the the, the the wonderful benefit I get of this podcast is I get to hear these stories and learn so much about different roles, particularly the last few we've done around VFX souping. It's been truly fascinating for me, not just the kind of the core role stuff, but the, the genuine behind the scenes stuff, what makes people tick. It's been wonderful. And um, your questions are great. Every podcast, honestly, the quality of the, the co-hosts just gets better and better. No disrespect to co-hosts that have come before you. They've all done their job beautifully. That was a genuine pleasure to, to listen to. And I don't have any, I mean, there's always more questions I could ask, but I'm happy to to leave it there. I'd be doing your questions an injustice if I started kind of layering lots of questions on, on top of what you've already asked. And so uh, so thank you. And, and Patricia, thanks so much for you know, the time you've given us as well, because I know it's a good a good chunk of time out, outside of a, a very busy a busy day job. So thank you. Thank you both. No, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you both. Uh, are there any final words or anything you'd like to plug or say or any messages you want to put out there before we go? Or are you happy for us to just tie this up in a, a neat bow? No, I mean, um, nothing to add. I just now want to get together and have a beer with them. Yeah, I'm here, I know. <laughs> what happens to make it happen? Well, you know what? It's just great hearing kind of Patricia's 20-year journey and continuing to go on that journey and and then um, you know you're embarking on a I'm sure a very successful career as a compositor and, and beyond that so it's uh, this is a really lovely time capsule I think that we can look back on thank you both and happy women's history month well that wraps up this week's episodes what a great conversation and perfect kickoff to our women's history month series it just leads me to thank Patricia for being a truly inspiring guest and M for being this week's most excellent guest co-host. We'll be back in two weeks' time, where we continue celebrating Women's History Month with another special guest and co-host from the Framestore community. Thanks for listening. See you then.